This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger sits down with Dr. Edward Kiefer, who is a historian in the historical office of the U.S. Secretary of Defense. They discuss Dr. Kiefer's newest volume in a 10-part series documenting America's Secretaries of Defense, which focuses on the Secretary of Defense Caspar Weinberger, who played a pivotal role in the military buildup during the Reagan administration. Dr. Ted Kiefer, welcome to Reaganism. Thank you for having me. Well, you're a historian in the Office of Secretary of Defense, historical office, and uh, an accomplished author. We'll get into that in the conversation. You're here today because of the most recent volume of the Department of Defense uh, Official History of Secretaries of Defense came out with a volume on Casper Weinberger and the U.S. military buildup, 1981 to 1985. Dr. Giver, these are massive amounts of information to go through. Uh, it's an impressive accomplishment. How did you get into the work of becoming the historian of the Office of Secretary of Defense Secretary's history? Well, I'm actually only one of the historians, but yeah. Uh, basically, I spent 34 years at the Department of, De of State editing the Foreign Relations series, which is a documentary collection, which explains through the original documents, uh, a selection of the original documents, our foreign policy. I did that for 34 years, and I said to myself, you know, I really want to do the next step, which is to write a book based on documentation. And when the uh, uh, job possibility came up, defense, I, I uh, left retirement and joined the office of the Secretary of Defense and started working on uh, books on Secretaries of Defense. Uh, and this, of course, is your second. You had an earlier volume on... Harold Brown, who was President Carter's Secretary of Defense, that was Harold Brown offsetting the Soviet military challenge, 1977 to 1981. So you really have this great continuity, whereas you came in to look at the tenure of Casper Weinberger. Of course, he was Ronald Reagan's Secretary of Defense from the time Reagan was elected through nearly the end of his administration, a remarkably long tenure uh, for Secretary of Defense. You really had this continuity. Did that help you in taking on the Weinberger project, having done the Harold Brown project? Uh, absolutely. Because one of the things that struck me, even though Carter is considered sort of anti an anti-defense president and Reagan is considered pro-defense, by 1980, there, there were great similarities between the two uh, administrations. Uh, I believe, and I say in my first book, that Harold Brown really convinced Carter that the Soviets had outperformed us and, and, and were a threat. And this was a, uh, Carter came to accept that. And fortunately, he could never overcome his, his uh, reputation as being anti-defense. And when when, when Ronald Reagan sort of claimed, campaigned on, on the question of, of defense, Carter was really very, very vulnerable. But there was great continuity between the two administrations. Well, you mentioned the word continuity, and there is this class of historians and scholars, as, as you know, Dr. Kiefer, who really have kind of uh, advancing the argument, this kind of continuity theory between Jimmy Carter and, and Ronald Reagan as it relates to national defense. 
having read uh, your book on on sector defense Weinberger and sector defense Brown, I kind of took away myself that there was continuity between secretaries of defense, that is Brown and Weinberger, whereas uh, President Carter and, and, and President Reagan were, were quite different. And, and even though, as you note, uh, President Carter came around, certainly his, his last year in office, to finally being convinced by his sector of defense, he was always pretty reluctant. I think you used close to that word, if not that word itself, in, in your volume on, on Secretary Harold Brown. But there's definitely continuity between those sectors of defense. Would you agree? I and mean, I think that's what you, you well, point I out. Agree. Partly because they because they both face the same challenge, which is managing the largest, uh, you know, department in the in the U.S. government with the most employees, the biggest non-discretionary budget. They both have similar challenges, but they are two. They had two very different approaches. Uh, Brown was very much a. Uh, uh, a manager, uh, a controlling manager. Weinberger was much willing, more willing to let other parts of the department join in the policy and budget decisions. Uh, Brown was, a, as you probably know from reading the book, had really spent most of his career working for the government, either as a physicist or a director of the Lawrence Livermore Lab, or then in, in, in the secretary of the, uh, of the uh, Air Force, and finally, um, you know, secretary of defense. Weinberger came from a very different background to to this job, as I'm sure you, you, if you read the book, you realize it. As I say, he was an odd choice to be Secretary of Defense. Yeah, let's focus on that. So let's scene set a little bit here. Cap Weinberger, uh, not uh, a defense intellectual or defense industrialist. so that would make him different than, let's say, as you know, Harold Brown or, or you know, McNamara in the sense uh, of someone who, who had that deep familiarity. He was uh, a very skilled uh, political figure and an experienced uh, cabinet official coming in, obviously having served as director of the Office of Management and Budget, uh, as well as uh, the, the uh, agency prior to the Health and Human Services uh, during the Nixon administration, uh, known as Cap the Knife, someone who many expected uh, to be a budget minder, minder of the Department of Defense. Yet this was a portfolio that uh, he jumped at, uh, although I think you put in your book that he was most interested in becoming Secretary of State, which of course went to Al Haig. Uh, but then he went after Secretary of Defense. What was that? What was it about defense that appealed to Cap Weinberger? Well, I... I... I think mainly, at least from what he, he he wrote in his own memoirs, and is that he wanted to serve Ronald Reagan. I mean, they they had a long friendship, and as you know, he went back to California days as director of the California finances. And I think what Reagan, the reason Reagan chose Weinberger is he knew we were going to have to spend a lot of money to restore the military balance with the Soviet Union. He hoped that Weinberger, the old cap the knife, would do it efficiently. And I think I say in my book that Weinberger really did not do it terribly efficiently. I mean, he did it very effectively, but he he didn't, he wasn't uh, uh, concerned with, with uh, cutting 
costs. He was concerned with increasing our military uh, resources. Curious what surprised you as you were going through the documents about Weinberger's approach. I think the my own research and sense of the history, it's exactly as you've outlined, um, that the challenge for him was pretty clear early on, that is Weinberger was the president of the United States had a mission. I mean, he ran on this. He talked about it years prior to becoming president of the United States, that he wanted to rebuild the military. And as you note, in this volume and in the Harold Brown volume, the Soviets were engaged in the largest military buildup pretty much since the Second World War after the Cuban Missile Crisis. And his job, number one, was to build, get the budgets to build that military. And it was kind of a lonely place, right? I mean, it wasn't like there were many people behind Cap Weinberger willing to take on this mission for the president, were they? Well, yeah, yeah, it was. But I, I think that's part of Weinberger's his appeal. He was a, as you know, he was a lawyer, but he was really an advocate. And if Ronald Reagan wanted to do this, he was going to do it to his utmost abilities. He was going to become the advocate for a larger defense budget. He became such an advocate that he really... Uh, wore out as welcome by the end of his, his term. He would he would sort of never ever concede that we didn't need more military spending. And military there was never enough military spending for him. And the Soviet Union was always this threat that had to be countered. Yeah, he was pretty relentless, uh, both inside the administration and then outside dealing with uh, the Congress. Of course, your volume uh, gives great insight into both of those challenges. Talk about inside the administration, uh, legendary fights between him and David Stockman, and maybe just give us the perspective of how great a challenge it was, what kind of budgets Weinberger was seeking uh, to realize the buildup, and what kind of resistance did he face inside the administration. I suppose there were some supporters uh, in the form of the first uh National Security Advisor, uh, Dick Allen was supportive, but it really was marginal to the budget fights, uh, as well as maybe a couple other figures. But what was what did Weinberger want? And give us the size of the challenge, and uh, where was the resistance, particularly with Stockman? Well, uh, Weinberger wanted essentially real growth in the budget, not just you know at, these were inflationary times, the early 1980s. And Weinberg did, just didn't want a bigger budget. He wanted a budget that had real growth after inflation. And that's what he set out to do and uh, try to convince the Congress to do. And he had allies in Congress as well. Uh, and, of course, on that first uh, budget uh, was, I think, 11% over real growth. So it was a major jump uh, in budget. And Stockman was his a major opponent, Stockman. Really, he wrote he re, in Stockman wrote a memoir in which he he really says not so terribly nice things about uh, about uh, Cap Weinberger and the Defense Department. He he feels he was bamboozled uh, into giving them too much money. But he was one major opponent. There were, of course, lots of people in the administration who supported him. Uh, uh, I'm trying to think, uh, Clark. Uh, yeah, Judge Clark there was the National Advisor. He would well, let's get, really get rid of that. Oh, that's terrible. Judge Clark was one of his uh, supporters. Uh, uh, 
director of uh, Central Intelligence, William Casey and others. Yeah, Bill Casey was a fan. Yeah. Yeah. He had lots of supporters. Uh, and there were and and even I mean, even Secretary Haig was not an opponent of, of it. I mean, there was a consensus, I think, by and large in the in the Reagan administration that we had that they had to do this. They had to increase military spending. Yeah, it seemed to me uh, to what extent. Right. Everybody knew that Reagan had made the promise. And what comes out certainly in the first part uh, of of the book is there was something else going on there, too. In the administration, of course, Stockman uh, wrote that colorful memoir, and uh, he was charged by the president to lead on the economic recovery, which not only needed tax cuts, but also required reduction in federal spending. And if you're seeking to reduce the federal spending levels and you have a sector defense, as you note, is seeking to realize over 10% real growth. If you take inflation, you're, you're, you're not going to what 17% or whatever. Um, naturally those, those forces are going to collide. Is it your sense, uh, Dr. Kiefer, that Weinberger's project, the way that he was seeking to carry out the defense rebuild, put the economic recovery at risk? Well, certainly a lot of critics said it added to the deficit. And and that I think was one of the one of the knocks on it. Uh Weinberger would say, look, we need to give money to defense. We don't you, you gotta take it from somewhere else. You, you have to give you have to give it to defense. This is our primary uh primary requirement. He even went so far, I think, as uh, as I remember, I didn't put it in the book, saying, Well, we have a national lottery to pay for, you know, defense. Which was a wild idea, <laughs> or at least a, a, a modern iteration of kind of the war bonds of of of, of, of the Second World War. Uh, yeah, that wasn't going to finance it, um, but ultimately it was, as you note, and we hit on in the beginning that it was a relationship between the president and the Secretary of Defense that essentially ensured that either Weinberger was going to have his way or Reagan was going to have his way, but no one was going to get in between them. Because would you say it was the president who really wanted this and when presented with the choice, always sided with his secretary of defense? Well, he did. He did initially. And as the deficits grew and as criticism mounted, you know, uh, of of the of defense spending, Reagan, President Reagan started to sort of make some concessions and not give one all that he asked for, but he still gave him a good hunk of money. Uh, you know, the 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 amount of money above inflation sort of went down as the as you, you went to, towards 1984. But yeah, Reagan was definitely supportive uh, of the, of defense spending there's no question about that yeah i mean it was always you're going to be five to six percent gdp uh throughout uh, his tenure um of course which which weinberger cap weinberger was very quick to point out was rather a small amount compared to what we were spending during the vietnam war the korean war or obviously world war ii but, you know, and he, he always pointed it out and, 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 and he seemed to do that in a fashion he knew that it appealed to his, as we were talking about before, his client, because Reagan, I remember one excerpt, uh, I think from your volume, emphasized how much 
Uh, Kennedy, for example, the Kennedy administration spent on defense, uh, and this was uh, basically half of the levels that the Kennedy administration w- was spending. Yeah, and, and Weinberger used that very effectively uh, in both his public uh, his public ex- explanations of the budget and, and privately with, with, with the president. We'll, we'll move on from the first uh, uh, kind of showdown, but it pretty interesting the way Weinberger and Stockman engaged, and you, you, you capture some of that color where they literally had to present in front of President Reagan, and you have kind of the cabinet arrayed to see this kind of the the arguments, it tells you something not just about, you were talking before about Weinberger's management style, but it also seems to be Reagan's management style as well, where he wasn't putting his thumb on the scale in an outward fashion. And he wanted it to be almost, you know, deliberative. And Weinberger came in at least on one occasion where it was a pivotal moment on, on that. I think it was going to be this, the, the 81 budget and 82 budget, excuse me, that he's got these, beautiful charts and his deputy Frank Carlucci is, is revealing them. And he, and he's totally sidelining the OMB director, David Stockman. Yeah. I think, I think that, I think he, he talked for an hour and I think Stockman got 10 minutes and and, and that's when Stockman said, I left that room feeling like I've been cut out of my rich uncle's will. <laughs> Which tells you something that, however talented uh, and well liked David Stockman was, he was never going to get in between uh, President Reagan and Cap Weinberger, was he? And no, and 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 Weinberger could be very effective at at, at dominating a uh, conversation, dominating a meeting uh, when he felt he needed to. <laughs> yeah. and, and, he, and he and he had that special bond. With President Reagan, I mean President uh, Reagan, which uh, obviously Stockman didn't have. What about the Congress? So that was uh, an area where the Reagan administration, particularly in those early years, was really engaging to get the economic recovery program through the tax cuts, uh, and then this, these defense budgets, and it really required the Secretary of Defense to exercise and 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 leverage all the political capital he had to get support for those those budgets how do you rate uh weinberger on that front it's a key area where sector defense either succeeds or fails yeah i think he was very effective initially as i said before uh and he uh you know all secretaries of defense in the in the sort of modern era really spend a lot of time testifying before congress about the budget, uh, speaking informally to congressmen and legislators about the budget, and it's really a, a process where they have to convince, you know, both sides of the aisle that this budget is necessary. And Weinger, Weinberger was very conscientious and good at that, and I think he he and he succeeded initially. Unfortunately, as it 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 just couldn't last. It, he he couldn't keep saying the same message over and over again. And as as he went it, towards 1984, he was less effective. And of course, if you're going to rebuild a military, and, and your book goes to really great detail in terms of the programs uh, that the Weinberger Pentagon invested in, the Reagan buildup focused on, you can't just do that in a year or two. T- take a minute to talk about what's involved bureaucratically, given 
again, the, the amount of money these military platforms uh, require, that sustainment of that funding becomes uh, a necessity. In other words, in the absence of sustaining the funding as you're, you know, adding tens of thousands of troops and platforms to support them, you're not going to get a rebuilding of the military if you just do as a one-off. I mean, the development of a major weapons system can take 10 years, even longer. And uh, what I think was significant about the Weinberger-Reagan period is that as during the, the, the Carter-Brown period, they start. They develop these new new weapons, new high technology weapons. During the Reagan Weinberger period, they actually bought the weapons and put them into service. So what you had is this long uh, process. You have uh, cruise missiles, uh, precision bombs, stealth aircraft. All these things came to fruition during the the, the Weinberger period. Yeah, there were two uh, particular platforms that had a lot of political controversy as you move from Carter into Reagan, and maybe three that come to mind. You have the B-1 bomber, the B-2 stealth bomber, and then you have the MX program as well. Uh, Maybe talk a a minute, either all three, two, or just one of them in terms of how it impacted and and sucked up a lot of the political capital. Of course, Carter hated the B-1 and and uh, stopped, stopped production, I mean, stopped development. Uh, and, of course, Reagan and Weinberger brought it back. It was meant to be a sort of uh, stopgap measure for penetration of the Soviet Union uh, in the eventuality of war until they got the B-2, which was a real stealth bomber, which Carter had... A, had approved the the concept and and uh, so that was uh, that was a um, decision was brought to bring them back as a sort of stop gap as a way to to bridge the gap between the old sort of system of the B two bombers uh, as 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 Cap Wanger always pointed out to President the uh, the the planes are older than the pilots flying them. Yeah, those B-52s, of course, are still being flown today. So they he was talking today. about kids. And, and now it's and, grandchildren. And, <laughs> yeah, and and if you if you ask me to 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 um, name the most cost-effective weapon the U.S. ever produced, it's got to be the B-2 bomb, a B-1. Yeah, yeah. I mean the the B-52 bomber. But anyway, and then the MX missile was probably the most trying uh, development, the most trying challenge for Weinberger and Reagan, because they kind of boxed themselves into a corner. They rejected the old, the system of, of, a, of a mobile uh, uh, system uh, with massive amounts of potential targets, which would be in the West, of course, uh, one of the places where Reagan had great strength. And they tried to find other ways to 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 deploy these weapons, and they never really succeeded. Uh, they did put eventually put the the peacemaker, as then came to be called, in uh, Minutemen three silos, but they weren't even hardened, and they were, of course eventually um, negotiated away. And this was the c- critical 
at the time, Reagan, of course, had opposed SALT II, ran and criticized Jimmy Carter and his administration for not doing anything to stem the military imbalance, in his view, between the United States and the Soviet Union. At the strategic level, there are many Democrats who had served, let's say, in the Kennedy and Johnson administration that shared that concern. And the MX was one of the ways that the Reagan administration was going to arrest the Soviet advantage. And so failing to come up with a system or a program to deal with it was, was a bit of a defeat. That was one of the, one, one of the, the, the problems that, that, that the administration faced. And uh, I mean, they, they had all kinds of solutions and some of them quite crazy, uh, you know, putting them on airplanes and flying them continually around or right. putting them on the deep sea and on sort of rovers. But uh, eventually uh, they <laughs> eventually they fell back and put just putting them in, in, in uh, unhardened silos. In the silos. And I and I think, you know, we, I mean, we're still we still have. Minutemen three missiles. I mean, it. You know, uh, the the gap. Uh, let's let's maybe transition to sort of Reagan and Weinberger's views of arms control because I, yeah, I was about to go there. Yeah, this is a related topic. So let me let, let me frame the question, and so we we'll we'll, we'll go into this. Um, you know, one of the areas uh, that that comes up in in the book and really reflects Weinberger's hawkishness is his, that is Weinberger's views on arms control. And in parallel with that, Reagan's becoming quite close with his Secretary of State, George Shultz, who for the first time in his administration uh, is really advancing the prospect of arms control with the Soviets, uh, in particular with uh, Mikhail Gorbachev uh, taking the helm of the Soviet Union. So talk about arms control, Dr. Kiefer, and kind of Weinberger's place in that discussion inside the Reagan administration. Well, Weinberger felt very strongly that arms control with the Soviet Union had to be verifiable it had to be equal. Uh, it had, and like Reagan, he he didn't want to limit arms. He wanted to reduce arms, and that's of course why. Uh, and so he was he was very much on the uh, wavelength initially with the president, um, and then uh, as the George Shultz started to, uh, force Hague was first secretary of. Of, of state than George Shultz, an old colleague of, of Weinberger's. But there's a curious relationship between those two. If you want me to get into some other time, I will. Yeah, maybe we'll jump into that in a minute. Yeah, go ahead. But, uh, but George Shultz really tried to push Reagan towards uh, arms control and at least discussing it with, 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 with the Soviets. Uh, and uh, I do believe I really believe that uh, Reagan felt that if he could talk to a Soviet leader, he could make progress. The problem was that the Soviet leaders were so decrepit and so sick that they couldn't really talk to Reagan. No, they always died on him, right? That was they a joke. They didn't talk to Reagan because right. they knew that, uh, that, that, that he would see how, how feeble they were. All they could really focus on was the... Uh, leadership succession in in the Kremlin, and when obviously, as you pointed out, when 
when Gorbachev comes in just in 19, uh, 1985, then there is somebody for Reagan to talk to. And I think that's a really important change uh, in, in arms control. And Reagan, you know, Reagan, as I say in the book, he, he's got a dual personality. He hates the Soviet Union and communism, the evil empire, as he calls it, but he also hates nuclear weapons. He really abhors the idea that people are going to be killed or the world is going to be destroyed by nuclear weapons. And he has two people talking to him, two sides of his personality. His, you know, one is one is Casper Weinberger, Soviets are bad, and one is George Shultz. Maybe we can talk to these guys. So it's a it's an interesting. They're not fighting for Reagan's mind. They're fighting to reinforce his two dual, you know, sides. And of course, uh, Weinberger has uh, some a team of people who really represented uh, those longstanding Cold Warrior voices that that Reagan knew prior to the presidency. Uh, Freddie Clay running his policy shop, for example. Uh, you have. Um, Richard Pearl, who was uh, uh, the hawk coming out of Scoop Jackson's office in the Senate, you profile both of those individuals. You have a Department of Defense, not just in their secretary, but in the team uh, that really stand for the strength side of the equation strategic in terms of nuclear weapons, but certainly not limited to that, as well as John Lehman, who's building out that 600 ship Navy, which you profile. So the whole thrust of President Reagan's Department of Defense and military rebuild uh, is in many respects allowing uh, and running in parallel with uh, the ability to negotiate and do some things on on arms reduction uh, negotiation. And it was Weinberger's absolute belief that the only way you're going to get real arms reductions is is through being strong and, you know, an equal relationship with the Soviets. It's not going to happen if if the Soviets discern that they have the advantage. And Reagan's, I, I believe Reagan has on his, on his uh, I mean, uh, Weinberger has on his, on his tombstone, peace through strength. And that was his, his message, uh, both, and, and the message of the Department of Defense at the time. Certainly uh, uh, a language that is associated with Ronald Reagan and and and, and probably the, the biggest advocate in American history of, of, of peace through strength. Through with Dr. Ted Kiefer, who is uh, the, one of the historians in the Office of Secretary of Defense Historical Office and author of Casper Weinberger and the U.S. Military Buildup, 1981-1985, a really important contribution to understanding President Reagan's time in office and particularly his national security policy and defense policy. Dr. Kiefer, to what extent after you look through the archives and and maybe you'll take a minute here to talk about your access and ability to perhaps look at documents that other researchers will not have an opportunity or be able to access, do you think the record bears out that the peace through strength that you were just referencing, the buildup uh, was essential to creating the conditions to have this negotiation, not just the buildup in terms of nuclear modernization, but the overall military buildup and conventional force we referenced a moment ago, the 600 ship Navy. As you look into the archive and, 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 and study the period, was that critical 
into realizing that one, the arms control reduction treaty, ultimately the INF, and then more broadly, uh, bring about the end of the cold war. What did you see? Uh, well, I, 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 I really believe that, you know, there's not one explanation for the end of the cold war, but you cannot discount the military buildup of the, of the Reagan Weinberger years. It gave the Soviets a real dilemma. The Soviets were, 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 were torn between military, build, building up their military, keeping up with the, you know, the, the United States program and consumer demand of the Soviet people. And they had to make a choice. And I think Gorbachev made a choice. He, he said, we're, we're, we can't compete uh, with, the, with the U.S. And so in that respect, I think that is one of the major reasons for the end of the Cold War. It's not the only reason. Uh, there are there were you know many presidents. Uh, there there was Reagan's ability to to be flexible and to recognize in Gorbachev that there was someone who we could actually work with, uh, and that's something that you know Weinberger was never one of the people that thought Gorbachev was really. He always thought he was sort of communism light, uh, basically just the, the gentle face of, of a very bad system. And you know, fast. Go ahead. You asked about my access. Yes, really, please go ahead. Talk about it. I had to have the access that the Secretary of Defense had at the time to look at all the documentation. So it required, and and you know, I'll just I won't get into this, but there is a lot of documentation in this period, and it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But it it uh, it it's. Uh, I had that. So I had to have that access, and not all of it. You know, I, 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 as you can see in the book, there are portions that were not we were not able to get to classify, but luckily they were small. Yeah, certainly there seems to be a lot of new material that you were able to wade into that other scholars uh, have not been able to access because of classification. Not that you know, for the stuff that you managed to get declassified or that no longer classified. Anything that stood out to you in the record uh, that was particularly revealing, um, you perhaps didn't anticipate seeing, or did it all kind of line up with what you knew about Weinberger and Reagan, uh, but you hadn't have you didn't have the the documents to to back it, and of course now you did. There are always a few. The you know generally yes, you the memoirs, the the scholarly works by people by journalists, they they tend to get it pretty right. But there's always a few things that that really surprise you and and, and kind of intrigue you. And uh, I'm trying to think of one that the best example. Well, um, during the Falklands War, um, it was always thought that you know Weinberger was very pro-British, and uh, Haig was sort of pro art not pro Argentine, but wanted to negotiate it. But what I found in in a sort of uh, 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 exchange between Weinberger and Haig, say, uh, Haig saying, "Look, I got to I got to make an effort to make it look like we're negotiating." But 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 tell Mark, Maggie Thatcher I'm with her, and, <laughs> you know, I, which I think was really quite surprising. Uh, you know, because the, the 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 general fearing is is that you know there were two sides and Haig and and. Uh, was on one and and Weinberger on the other. And another pivotal moment uh, for Weinberger, separate apart from the military buildup, but it was perhaps um, 
significant in building the support for the buildup and making Americans take pride in the military, which was a key political objective for President Reagan and something that Secretary of Defense Weinberger shared was the Grenada War and and the military operation there. Uh, How consequential was Grenada in Weinberger's tenure and getting building support for the Reagan administration uh, military program? Well, you know, it was the largest uh, largest military operation since Vietnam. Uh, and uh, it was not a total success. I mean, it, uh, we ended up having a tough time take, you know, basically fighting Cuban, uh, Cuban sort of reservists who were engineers and, and advisors. But it was the first use of force, I think, you know, th- that since since really since the Vietnam War. And that coupled with the experience in Lebanon got Weinberger thinking about the use of combat troops, uh, American combat troops abroad. And, and he came up with what was known as the Weinberger Doctrine, which I think is a very significant uh, uh, contribution. Uh, and of course it was uh, then sort of rehashed by his then military assistant, Colin Powell, into the, the Powell Doctrine, although it wasn't as specific as, as uh, Weinberger's doctrine. And of course, that doctrine was overwhelming force. Otherwise, you don't, you don't go in and yeah, do it. It, had, it basically had six things, overwhelming force, public support, know what, you, you know, know what you're going to accomplish and how to accomplish it, uh, make sure you have an exit strategy, and uh, use force as a last resort. And it became, you know, it, it, it became a, a Weinberger's sort of one of his main contributions, I think. Well, it, it is it is an interesting feature of the Reagan administration, President Reagan's time serving as commander in chief and certainly Casper uh, Weinberger's tenure as secretary of defense. Whereas you look at that period of time, you know, seven years for Weinberger, other than uh, the cases we just discussed, U.S. forces weren't introduced, certainly in some sort of extended uh, armed conflict. Uh, and 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 so as you're building up the military, it's why we think of it as a peacetime military build that, of course, you're in the midst of the Cold War. Um, that is really is unique, right, that this peace through strength actually uh, played out during his tenure in terms of there was uh, peace from the standpoint of U.S. non-engaged in armed conflict for an extensive duration. Yes, and and uh, and Weinberg was a, was a, as a secretary. He was one of those secretaries of defense that didn't want to use the military. That was the last thing he wanted to do: is send U.S. troops into combat. He wanted to avoid that. And he, I want to focus on two other features, and then we'll get you to weigh in on where Casper Weinberger ranks, kind of historically amongst other secretaries of defense. You get to do that as 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 one of the historians from uh, the office of the Secretary of Defense Historical Office. Uh, but let's talk about a, a comment you made earlier that perhaps Reinberger did the buildup, but wasn't done efficiently. Surprising to some, because he, of course, was a director of the Office of Management and Budget. He really uh, decentralized the management of the buildup. As you point out, he empowered his secretaries of the military departments, Secretary of the Navy, Secretary of the Air Force, Secretary of the Army, 
and trusted them to build out the program and create these programs of record, figure out which platforms to invest in and work with his office secretary of defense, his deputy secretary of defense, Frank Carlucci for some of the time and others to get them the funds. It sounds to me like you're somewhat critical of it, although he accomplished his goal ultimately of, well, yeah, of building I mean, up those military I mean, departments. It, it, like all, it, it had both plus sides and minus sides. It, it, it created a lot of cooperation and, and uh, cohesiveness and some very good weapon systems platforms. But there were, there, there were, there were things that probably were, could have been better spent. Money could have been better spent on things. But uh, Weinberger also had a program for sort of, you know, uh, trying to eliminate waste and mismanagement in government, and particularly in the Defense Department. And, and that's, a, that's a very difficult, very difficult task to undertake. And I, and I concluded in the book that while his effort was commendable, the results were not as good as he as he'd hoped for. Uh, it's very hard to root out, you know, the defense acquisition process is so long, so complicated, and has so many moving parts that it is very hard to reform it. And and that and you always have this tension between reform and building. And certainly yeah. the first priority was building. One of the big differences between the Carter administration and the Reagan administration was its Navy. Um, and if you read both of your books, the Brown volume and the Weinberger volume, you see that the Carter consumption of the Navy was uh, minimalist in nature, focused on um, really controlling the sea lanes into Europe, not the sort of um, three ocean Navy that was going to advance us interests and press in and challenge the Soviets. Of course, you get to the Reagan administration. One of the key features of the Reagan military is that 600 ship Navy that could do just what I described global yeah. in nature, pressing forward. Where do you rank that in terms of the significant, uh, accomplishments uh, and contributions of the Reagan Department of Defense, and particularly the strategy which which underlies it. Well, of course, uh, I'll go back to, to Carter, if you don't mind. Carter, of course, was in the Navy, but he had a kind of very curious relationship with the Navy. Yeah. It was not uh, he he was not a success in the Navy, and he a lot of people in the Pentagon thought he was anti-Navy. And as he once said to the Joint Chiefs of Staff, all we really need is uh, 200 uh, missiles on, you know, ice on submarines, and that, that's all the deterrent we need. He had a very. Uh, I mean, referring to the sea launch ballistic missiles, you know, yeah, the, 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 right, the, yeah. the submarines. Yeah. And, and he uh, had a very minimalist view uh, of the Navy, and, and he actually, I think, discriminated against the Navy during his. Uh, uh, the, as you say, just the opposite uh, uh, during the Reagan years of, uh, and you had a very, as as you know, you were made the point, very very uh, aggressive uh, and uh, charismatic Secretary of the Navy, not some you know sort of old businessman. This was a young you know advocate for naval uh, projection of power, and and he and he was successful. In, in uh, and, and to what extent was that reflective of of we, of course, you're referring to Secretary of Navy John Lehman of Weinberger's priorities, more broadly, the president's priorities. I mean, the president talked well, about I, during the campaign. I think, I think that, if anything, Weinberger, uh, Weinberger and, and uh, 
the president would have agreed with Lehman. Lehman was a really effective advocate for the Navy, and I think they they, they bought what he was saying. Uh, they certainly would have accepted. And but remember, some of the some of the naval uh, some of the Navy. Uh, the, the the ballistic missiles on on uh, submarines those those were actually begun during the Carter years and they really came into they were they were in deployed during the 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 Reagan years so there was some still some continuity between them. yeah no doubt and it was a clear tension between uh, Secretary of Defense Harold Brown and the President of the United States Carter over investments in the Navy uh, and and for sure. Uh, Carter's Secretary of Navy and Chief of Naval Operations were at the least frustrated, if not downright despondent, uh, in terms of getting Carter to sign off on, on what they were trying to do. And of course, Lehman, Weinberger, and Reagan come in, and you know, those those programs get funded and 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 are scaled. Let's go to one other. We're with Dr. Ted Kiefer, author of Casper Weinberger and the US Military Buildup, 1981 to 1985. One area that is essential when you think about President Reagan's conception of national defense, Cold War was no doubt pivotal in uh, Cold War relations during his time in office and the end of the Cold War was the Strategic Defense Initiative, SDI. Weinberger was someone who uh, was ambivalent to unhappy or negative on SDI. Uh, President Reagan, of course, was an enthusiastic supporter, famously made a speech in 1983, announcing it to the world and became a key area of difference between Reagan and Gorbachev during their summitry, particularly the Reykjavik summit. Dr. Kiefer, where does SDI fall in in your estimation of Cap Weinberger's uh, reign as Secretary of Defense? Well, uh, you're, you're right. Weinberger first, being an advocate for uh, the MX uh, and um, that kind of, and he was he he wasn't opposed to uh, SDI, but he wasn't a, he wasn't one of the promoters. But when he realized how enthusiastic the president was about SDI, there's that famous story where he meets in this snowstorm in in. Um, I think it's February 82 with the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And one of the Joint Chiefs, I forget which one, says to him, wouldn't it be better than avenging this, you know, uh, a nuclear war if we could prevent it from happening? And if we had a system that could could destroy incoming weapons in space. And and to, and to some to the nuclear abolitionist Ronald Reagan, to that side of Ronald Reagan that really appealed and once weinberger realized that uh he became a real proponent of sdi I'm kind of curious because you know of course weinberg goes back to the california days with president reagan not necessarily on the defense side others were doing that dick allen most notably uh reagan always had a fixation on ballistic missile defense and, you know, a trip to NORAD in 1979 documented by Marty Anderson. You know, you see that it really captivated his uh, captured, I should say his imagination. And so it is a bit of a curious uh, a gap as it were between two actors that is Weinberger and Reagan, who otherwise really were in lockstep that uh, they were somewhat disjointed for a while, as you point out on this on this subject uh, of course it also 
probably drove George Schultz crazy too, uh, because Reagan was unwilling to give it up once he had it, even at the point where George Schultz thought it probably would have been a good, you know, something to trade away. Good negotiating pawn. Yes. Yeah. But I, I think that goes to Reagan's optimism. And that's one thing that Weinberger always said about Reagan. He's a Californian. He's optimistic. He was optimistic that, that SDI could in fact, really do what he hoped it could do. And I, you know, let's, let's end with that and we'll go to the lightning round because it's almost ending where we started on this warm relationship between a sector of defense and a president. Curious, as a student of history, student of secretaries of defense, was there ever a closer relationship, kind of this tight-knit relationship between a president and a sector of defense like you have between Reagan and Weinberger? I would have to, I, I would probably say, no, there never was. I mean, uh, maybe McNamara and Kennedy was, there, there was a sort of respect between those, but there was, they didn't have that, that, that personal relationship that went back decades. Uh, and certainly Weinberger felt that Ronald Reagan, Nancy Reagan, they were his friends. Uh, I mean, yeah, there's a tremendous amount of loyalty and, and, and uh, admiration yeah. it, it comes through. Yeah, I mean, he, you know, Reagan's appeal was very powerful. I mean, and and people when they met him, uh, uh, including my wife once, you know, he just he just uh, he just exuded sort of uh, uh, friendliness. And I do think that uh, uh, Weinberger really felt, you know, he had the ability he could go and arrange a meeting with with uh, the president without having to go through the bureaucracy. And he could send a memo to the president sort of back channel without going through the bureaucracy. He had that special connection to his boss. Yeah, that's a great point. It, it really didn't require the chief of staff, whether it was Jim Baker or, you know, the national security advisor uh, to go through. I mean, this was something he picked up the phone and spoke to the president in both directions. It comes across actually as for our, our viewers uh, watching this show over uh, Dr. Kiefer's left shoulder is a picture of the cover of the book where you have Reagan and Weinberger just together in the old office having an exchange. And you see that uh, kind of the informal relationship. Yeah, right, yeah. And, and then you contrast that with over your right shoulder, uh, which is, of course is the uh, the volume on Carter and his Secretary of Defense, Harold Brown, where it's more formal. There probably looks like they're in the cabinet room and he's being flanked. Uh, yeah. And and that really shows kind of the business-like, somewhat more distant relationship between those two principles and, and what you see in Weinberger. A good summary in, in some respects, Dr. Kiefer, of what we're discussing. Exactly. I, I didn't hadn't really thought of it that way, but that's a very good point. <laughs> Let's jump to our lightning round. Uh, here's where we ask all our guests to share their favorite Reagan speech, their favorite Reagan book and favorite Reagan quote. Dr. Kiefer, you can give us all three, two or just one. What do you have to share? Well, I, I have a, a kind of one I would like to share with you. It's it's it, it relates to the um, Israeli war in 1982 with the PLO in Lebanon. And uh, I think uh, the Israelis are on on the outskirts of, of, of Beirut. The, the, the Lebanese are in, I mean, the PLO is in Beirut. The PLO is uh, uh, 
the U.S. is trying to get the PLO out of Lebanon, uh, at least the leadership and the major. And um, the Israelis shut off the water and shut off electricity, and they're bombarding uh, the uh, Beirut. And Reagan says, you know, this isn't this isn't right. And he talks to to the Prime Minister of Israel, Menachem Begin, and and says, you know, you're you're causing a holocaust here. And this takes Begin aback because, you know, he's a survivor himself. And within a, within a, a hours, the shelling stops. Uh, and eventually, that leads to the first uh, peacekeeping mission where the PLO leave uh, Beirut. But I think that was that to me is the essential Ronald Reagan, the humanist, uh, the person who cares about people, uh, and and he cared about people on an individual level. If not, you know, that was where people were innocent people were being killed. Yeah, interesting one. Obviously, he's a proud defender of Israel and supporter of Israel. Um, I, I recall uh, Deaver uh, in his memoir writing about that episode. What I think is also notable, notable about it, obviously the importance of alliances to Ronald Reagan, that was not something expressed from the White House press room or leaked to the New York Times. It was the President of the United States privately calling up his ally and friend Menachem Begin and saying, hey, uh, I think this has gone far enough. We, we need to stop this. That was President Reagan's judgment. And and as you were as you shared, uh, Dr. Kiefer, uh, you know, Menachem Begin, the prime minister, responded. But that was done behind closed doors in the Oval Office. If I have it right. Well, that, of course, can be the most effective way of diplomacy is by, you know, not public diplomacy, but person to person, private diplomacy. Dr. Kiefer, thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.